0: Mordecai uh, Johnson was a Morehouse man before there was a Morehouse. (laughs) He he graduated from Atlanta Baptist uh, Seminary. And he became the first president, the first black president of Howard University. Johnson was made president of Howard University in 1926 the year in which I was born, and he retired in 1960, the year in which Connie, Mark, David, and Preston came to the Harvard Divinity School. Several years after that, Peter came, and we welcomed him into our home, and that relationship continued throughout his life. My wife, Constance, was a member of the Stendhal Committee that President Bach established to consider the future of Memorial Church, following the resignation of Professor Charles Price. She was also a member of the group that wrote a minority report recommending that the church be continued in a form relatively close to its existing pattern. President Bach adopted that aspect of the Minority Report. A single minister was to be appointed to carry out the Ministry of Memorial Church. I, together with Don L. Price of the Kennedy School of Government and Dr. Richard Hunt, the University Marshal, constituted the search committee that recommended that Peter J. Gomes be appointed to the position of minister in the Memorial Church. He had served for three years as Charles Price's assistant, and we found the best man in the world right in our midst. The placing of Peter's portrait in the faculty room in Massachusetts Hall. The testimony of today's honorees and many others confirm the wisdom of President Bach's decision and I and my family are pleased to be associated with the presence of Peter at Harvard. I want to thank also two people who aren't here, uh, Jan Randolph, who served as Peter's assistant, and Cynthia Rosano, who served as Peter's editor. Their service meant a great deal to Memorial Church, and they helped Peter to make his writings and preachings available in a pleasant form to all. Harvard Divinity School became a place where the arts of ministry could be seen as a major emphasis and something that would be cultivated because of Peter's work. I want also to thank Susan Swartz for inviting me into her ministry. For several summers she invited many me and a, men, a number of others into her home for a day of spiritual reflection and discussion. There I first saw her art and began to love it. It gave me a greater appreciation of nature and God's creation of it. I am pleased that she has consented to share her artistic creations with Harvard Divinity School. Because of her art, our Eyes are made open to the beauty that surrounds us and to God. Thanks again for all you have done to honor me and my family. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Preston. Divinity Dialogues was created by the Alumni Alumni Council in 2012 to showcase the interesting and diverse personal and vocational stories of our alumni. As graduates, we know the importance of stories to our life together here at HDS, of our individual stories and how these weave together to make our communal story. Today we will hear from the 2016 cohort of alumni recipients of the Gomes Honors. Each honoree will share a bit of his or her story with us now. And although we have only a short time together, we will surely benefit from getting even a glimpse of these fascinating figures. Let's begin with Cynthia King, MDiv 96.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, Had you ever said that I'd be in the Braun Room eating anything other than hummus, I would have not believed you. (laughs) And it's a Wednesday nonetheless, or Tuesday, <laughs> Thursday nonetheless. Uh, first, thank you to the Alumni Council for this mm-hmm. honor. Again, it, had you asked my classmates, like out of all of my classmates, because I had many because I stayed for a couple years, um, who would have gotten this award? No one would have pointed a finger at me. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm completely blown away uh, by that. And thank you for the committee for putting all this together. And speaking of not worthy, I just listened to the, um, Read the bios of these people. I, I, I called up Michael whenever I, I said, "Are you sure?" As a, as a friend of mine just said, um, you, "You sound like Marissa Torme, Tomei at the Oscars." Are you sure it was me? Oh, <laughs> it was, you, you sure it wasn't Helen Mirren? Are you sure? So, um, speaking of that, that was actually my very good friend uh, and uh, co- colleague uh, Victoria Weinstein, Reverend Dr. Victoria Weinstein, who is one of my guests who is here, fellow HDS classmate, UU um, colleague in ministry, and uh, most notably, she is my godson. Uh, she, is, she is the godmother to my son, um, but really her claim to fame is, among the claims to fame that she has, is she has been at the forefront of the social media um, ministry. And for those of you who have not heard of it, uh, I do commend to you beauty tips for ministers. Um, so Vicki, .com. <laughs> so Vicki is among uh, my guests, so thank you for being here. Also Lisa <coughs> Presley, uh, an HDS classmate, and a uh, fellow UU minister, colleague. Um, and Lisa is among the pioneers in helping establish a military ministry within Unitarian Universalism, because at one point, it was just me knocking at an empty door, um, and at least Lisa was at a door knocking with me. Um, And eventually now we have approximately 17 people who are Unitarian Universalists who are in the military ministry, um, which was unheard of about 25 years ago. Uh, Also, Reverend Diane Miller, HDS graduate, and um, former UUA presidential candidate. She's kind of like the Hillary Clinton of our generation in that, I mean, she was here at HDS when they didn't even have restrooms for women, okay? So this, she has kicked down a lot of doors with her spiked heel and and has made it possible. And I know that I stand here because of um, her keeping, keep showing up at a place like this when portraits like these were not also being being hung here in the Brown Room. And uh, finally, I wanted to thank you also for your nomination, Diane, and there were, I guess, a few other colleagues who nominated me, Jennifer Innes, uh, Judy Long, it really does feel like the Oscars, <laughs> and P.D. Wadler. Um, I do want to make mention, though, about the other military chaplains. They're approximately, in a rough estimate from what I'm guessing, approximately four to 5,000 uh, when you combine all the branches of service and active duty and reserve and National Guard, et cetera, in some form or another. They're about I'll say roughly 5,000 of us who are serving on active duty, or excuse me, who are serving as military chaplains. And the reality is, I haven't done anything more remarkable than what my colleagues in military ministry have done. The thing that makes it distinguished that why I'm standing here is because I attended this university. And so I just want to lift them up, um, but the room wouldn't fit all of them. And by the way, Michael, we would have been far more on time had you had a bunch of military <laughs> Um But the the the, the one of the, one of the questions I kept asking during this honors is, what did you learn at Harvard? You know, what, what was the one thing, or what are the you know like the top five things? And and I kept reflecting on that. And first of all, being in your young adult years and coming of age is probably not a good place to be doing that, which is kind of why I was having a hard time remembering um, what I was learning at Harvard Divinity School. But it wasn't so much that I was, what I was learning, but it was how I was learning. And, you know, um, we, I would walk around Mount Auburn Cemetery with Conrad Wright, and there we were, and he's pointing out all of these, you know, figures who were founders of Harvard, and, Unitarianism and Universalism and and we were walking on holy ground in ways that These people weren't dead. They were very much alive and they were very much alive in my tradition and um, I am forever grateful for that, you know We could stand and all of us can stand in the chapel where Ralph Waldo Emerson preached his divinity school address which you know forever changed the the landscape of of American Protestantism as we know it and then I did my internship at the first Parish in Concord, Massachusetts, which is where Barzelay Frost, the minister that Emerson so poetically criticized um, about cold corpse Unitarianism, and I remember standing in that pulpit like delivering my nascent sermons. I used to gray my hair actually because I was so baby-faced, and and I and I could feel the ghost of Emerson looking down on me. Knowing I had absolutely no life experience at that point and like what did I have to say to like a congregation at Concord and you know Hearing his criticism and so again these people it wasn't so much how but there's something about There's there's being at Harvard that offers this entree to this living legacy And I knew um, I know that I was a part of it And just for those of you who didn't know the original divinity school (laughs) dialogues were happening during our generation when James Luther Adams lived right across the street and we would go over there on Fridays and just sit around his um, fireside and and chat. And again, you know, sitting at the feet of the masters and just bowing down and not opening my mouth so I didn't say anything, um, which is what's a little bit intimidating about being here is just you don't open your mouth, you know, because there's so many great people espousing such great wisdom um, and experience. And so I'm, I'm really, quite blown away by all of this. Uh, very suited for military chaplaincy because the type, of mil- um, the type of preaching that we do are very short, sweet, to the point sermons. And, um, and they happen on the deck plate and they happen really fast. And one of the things that I find remarkable though is that um, the, the, when I first graduated and it was said that I was going into Uh, the military, um, it was not uncommon for people to say, you can't go into the military, it's a waste of a Harvard degree. And so um, having Memorial Hall and Memorial Chapel, um, you know, it's definitely not a waste of a Harvard degree. There are many people who have served in this capacity and it's a growing, um, I should say a diminishing number who are, uh, we only have about 101 members of our Congress, so that's only about 18% of our Congress who who are veterans. And um, it's a way to do public service. And there's a lot more to be said about conscription and about socioeconomic status and race and how that all plays out. Um, And it's just just such a privilege to come back and have this touchstone here at Harvard and to be able to go forth. Because Harvard is a part of what I do and providing ministry of what matters and where it matters and, and when it matters. And I'll be forever grateful for how I learned to learn and ask questions Um, as I continue to go forward in those capacities. So thank you all for being here and for uh, this honor.
1: Thank you, Cynthia. I love that phrase, learning how to learn. It's a great capture of what goes on here. We'll next hear from Valerie Kaur, MTS07.
3: I am so deeply honored to be here with you. Cynthia, Betsy, Alton, Preston, I, I sit at your feet and I learn from you. And so it is a privilege to be sitting at this table next to you. Thank you. When I first met Peter Gomes, one knows that one does not see Peter Gomes, just see him. One hears him. When I first heard Peter Gomes, It was my first week at Divinity School. The year was 2004. It was our convocation, and he was delivering it. His voice echoed and boomed across the stained glass, and my heart swelled from listening to him. He said, it is urgent that religious analysis be provided in a world where religions and their policies make the front page news. As I was sitting there and hearing him, I knew that that is why I came to Harvard Divinity School. As a Sikh American, I came to Harvard Divinity School to understand the whirlwind that was raging in our country and tearing apart my community. You see, in the aftermath of September 11th, we know that hate violence broke out on city streets across the United States, Sikh and Muslim Americans caught People who saw us as perpetually foreign, as automatically suspect, as potentially terrorist, even though my family had been in the United States for more than 100 years. I went from city to city, from home to home, sometimes when the blood was still fresh on the ground. And I heard the stories of people longing to belong, longing to be seen the way that they saw themselves, but uncertain if they ever would be, ever could be, in a world that was now divided into us versus them. The path of love, Guru Nanak says, the Sikh founder. The path of love is dangerous. If you want to play the game of love with me, then come forth with your head on your hand. I didn't know what that meant until I found myself on a street corner in New York City, August of 2004, holding my film camera. This was my sword and shield. This is the way I learned how to to fight in the aftermath of 9-11, holding the camera when The NYPD officers came in with great force through the protesters I was filming down to the ground, saw me filming them, threw me against the wall, arrested me, my hands went numb from the handcuffs. We were taken to a place called Guantanamo on the Hudson, a detention center in New York City where we were kept in cages like animals and my hand crumpled against my chest, I thought Will stories set me free? My faith began to shatter. A week later, I was listening to Peter Gomes. A week later, I started Harvard Divinity School. So as I was listening to him, my arm was in a splint, and my heart was filled with pain. And I thought that the only way to to solve this pain, to continue to walk the path of love, was to immerse myself in texts. And so I took every course that this university offered on evil, as if Kant and Arendt and Kierkegaard could somehow heal me. And so I remember walking these cobblestone pathways, the pain coming down in torrents as I cried. But the wind, thank God for the wind being so cold here, would dry my tears by the time I arrived in Diana X class or Michael Jackson's class. So no one quite understood the pain I was holding. It was a really dark time in my life. Divinity School did save me, though. And it wasn't the books. It was the people. I'm here today. I'm still walking this path of love with the hot winds of the world raging around us as they are in this moment. I'm here today because of Michelle Goldhaber. Michelle, my classmate, who we met met in Andover Chapel. I was the only sick in divinity school. Every week we had a noon service where a faith community organized a, a worship service, and because I was the only sick, they asked me to organize mine for my faith community, <laughs> and Michelle said, don't worry, I'll help you. <laughs> and together we brought the gurdwara, the songs and stories and sounds of my faith tradition into Andover Chapel. We transformed it. And you told me, you showed me that I was not a guest here, that I belonged here, that We, a people of many faiths, if we prayed together, we could become brave together. Courage, courage is fear that has said its prayers, and you prayed with me, and you are my sister for life for that. I'm here today because of Valerie Corville. My name is inside of her name. We were destined to meet. My arm wasn't healing. It was months and months of waking up with nightmares of the police officer who hurt me and my arm would not heal until I landed on your treatment table. She's an acupuncturist here in Boston and she put her hands on my temples and my tears they flowed once again but I wasn't crying alone anymore. You, You shed tears with me, you held my story and you, after all these years, you showed me that the way we make change is just as important as the change we make that too often people who fight for justice embody the dysfunctions, the anger, the rage, the scarcity, the anxiety that we try to heal out in the world, but you said, no, you can do it with joy. Peter Gomes, We you can do it with joy, with wellness for yourself and for all you touch. I am here because of, of you. I'm here today because of Michael Jackson. Michael, where are you? He's teaching. He was upstairs. Michael Jackson, Professor Michael Jackson, his course, The Politics of Storytelling, gave me the theoretical foundation for my life work, that I understood that stories could be redemptive and transformative. And when I left here, I decided that I wanted to walk this path of love by being a storyteller. So yes, I'm a lawyer and a filmmaker and an organizer. But in all of these ways, I tell the stories. I hope to tell the stories to set other people free. And it was Marshall Gans who is here who showed me how to use stories strategically to fight for social change as part of social movement, story of self, us, now. Marshall, your work has inspired me and a whole generation of young people who are walking with your words in our hands. This path of love, you are our mentor, our guide, our guru, and we are so grateful to you. Thank you, Marshall. And I'm here because of Kathy, who's sitting next to you. Kathy Anderson, who has since showed me that if I could think of my own life as a story, that I might be bold enough, brave enough to keep speaking, even when the fires grow high. In this moment, in this moment, the fires are raging high. And I have to remember that in every story I have told, in every community that I've been part of, I have seen just as your love all saved me while I was here at HDS. I have seen people in the darkest places, (laughs) on the shores of Guantanamo, behind the walls of supermax prisons, in the impoverished corners of our country, in the streets of New York, in a field in Wisconsin when the blood from a mass shooting still soaks the ground. I have seen in these places, in these dark places, people when they are sitting next to when they take the hands of people next to them who pray with them, who make them believe even when there feels like there's nothing left to believe, that we have faith in each other and therefore faith in the God that lives within us and around us, whether we name that God by God or the stars in the heaven or the trees or the stories that give us solace and meaning from wherever we draw that love, we feel it pass between us when we take each other's hands. So in all these places, I have learned that courage is only possible in community. And that's why, Susie Hayward, when you sent me that email telling me that I had been nominated with and chosen along with these four, that's why I wrote back saying that I was once again in tears. But this time, I was reminded that even as I was in the midst of the latest hate crime in my hometown, that I wasn't alone. And so Divinity School, the community at Harvard, you are esteemed and you are known because of the research and scholarship and teaching that you lead here. But please hold the community you lead here in just as high esteem. The mentorship and community you, you have here can show us that the, a life of the mind requires the love of community. And that's why, and this is where I'll close, I'm here because of my parents, <clears throat> my mother and my father. I never understood the way that you loved me until I held my son in my arms a year or so ago. And as I held him in my arms, I knew that I would give my life for him. I looked at you both for the first time with new eyes and saw all the ways you had poured your body, your breath, your blood into me so that I could face those hot winds of the world with a warrior's heart and a saint's eyes. You taught me how to do that. I try to love him the way you love me. And I try to take that love and imagine what it might look like if we poured into people who don't look like us, to others into our opponents, into our communities, into our world. I believe that when we take that kind of love out there, love is revolutionary. I thank you. I love you. (laughs) And I am forever indebted to all of you.
1: Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Thank you, Valerie. We will now hear from Betsy Parker, MDiv 85.
4: What an honor to be here. And thanks to all of you for making this such a very special day for all of us. Not one I ever imagined. One of the highest risk and most meaningful and pivotal moments of my career since I left Harvard Divinity School in 1985 was the decision to gear shift out of Episcopal parish ministry after about 22 years and come up out of the confines of church and denominational structures into a much larger dangerously global world. While my parish work was always satisfying and included work in several different states in the United States and as one of the early woman ordinands in the north of England who was the first woman to ever read morning prayer in the cathedral at Sheffield in England and to assist at a Eucharist and preach in the Anglican Cathedral in Nairobi, Kenya. I have had numerous pioneering experiences since that time as one of the early woman ordinands. But I remembered one of my bishops telling us when we were very young clergy that to be bivocational into the future was probably a very good thing to do in the Episcopal Church, to plan for a safeguard for our careers going forward. When I became a first responder and team head in the World Trade Center disaster on 9-11 in New York City, it was not in relation to any church organization or denomination. Rather, my work developed under the guidance of the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner of New York City, Dr. Charles Hirsch, and the Office of Mayor Julie's Office of Emergency Management in New York City. While I was there, I was able to use my training in systems management and develop models for crisis intervention in ground zero, dovetailing with numerous other departments who were also working on the catastrophe at the time. These included FEMA and the disaster morticians, the Port Authority, the NYPD, the PAPD, and on and on and on. I think the risks of working in such a dangerous on-fire and exploding environment are self-evident, not to mention that everybody wanted to be in charge down there. Mm. And there were many subcultures that one had to wade through and help with because only a few people were selected to be the heads of operations. So there were many, many difficult turf wars. I can relate. To everything that Valerie said. Above all things, we had to have leaders who were systematic in their work and could remain calm under the most dire circumstances and human tragedy. We all were contaminated in highly septic and toxic air. I myself was involved with the project until its completion two years later. There were also real health risks associated with working in the area of the collapsed south tower, which was where I was usually stationed in the early days, and the morgue on 9-11 as I was hospitalized three times and now live with inflammatory lung disease from that era. I am presently recovering with, from my 16th bout of pneumonia. So please excuse me if I cough a bit. It was not that I was highly or necessarily well-trained for any work that I did outside of the church, but that I always believed in myself and that I might have something useful I could contribute to many different endeavors in the world. I never doubted myself or thought too far forward of what the immediate task was at hand. and that way, when the next opportunity presented, I could more easily take it on and not paralyze myself with fear and the numerous high risks I was taking. I just focused and refocused on the task at hand. In 2007, I was reading an article in a scientific magazine, years after I had finished my work down in Ground Zero. It was about sustainable development across sub-Saharan Africa, and it was written by macroeconomist superstar and Harvard alum and Columbia professor, Dr. Jeffrey Sachs. I was impressed by his models for large-scale work in the poorest rural villages, and I decided that I would attend one of his classes at Columbia. And there, I came on board with Dr. Sachs and his wife, Dr. Sonia Sachs, and our team in New York. For several years, we worked across Equatorial Africa, and then about eight years ago, the United Nations decided to come on board and examine our model for millennium villages and millennium development goals. The UN decided that our model for sustainable development was the one it wished to embrace and work out of in order to create its own sustainable development goals which now are the basis of all the work at the United Nations. I came into the high-risk world of the UN and all that that would mean pulling me forward like a whirlwind into the world. I attended General Assembly meetings at the U.N. and continue to do that today, and African African Union meetings, and now travel frequently to Africa to meet with various ministers of finance, health, education, and with presidents of the many countries. When the Ebola crisis was raging in Guinea, Jeff Sachs sent me to Accra to meet with the president of Guinea, Alpha Condi, who I'm very happy to say was just reelected. He told me how happy he was to actually see someone from the United States who cared because he had not met with anyone from the United States who was willing to sponsor and back any aspects of the Ebola crisis there. I also met with our Ebola team of Doctors Without Borders to discuss our Ebola model for training and deploying Ebola healthcare workers. Another risk was that I raced through the city streets in a motorcade which sped at about 60 miles per hour down tiny side streets to get as quickly as possible to the president's office without being shot at. And then the real risk of Ebola itself as I was quarantined for three weeks upon my return to the US. And yet another unusual risk I have taken is the risk of being the only ordained woman clergy working with the Vatican now in their efforts to eradicate the human trafficking problems throughout the world. I've struck up a great friendship with the Chancellor of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, Bishop Sanchez Serrando, and he and I just decided in Rome two weeks ago we would put on a youth event on human trafficking at the Vatican this November. This work with the Vatican has been a wonderful opportunity for me. I also work there with the Bishop of Derby, England, Alistair Redfern, and Prime Minister Aziz of Pakistan. Another great risk I regularly take now is the risk of failure doing these large-scale projects. One of my African projects I am the proudest of, is the one million community healthcare workers campaign. We have officially announced the start of this program in Ghana with the endorsement of the country's leadership by the president of Ghana, with whom I met twice, John Mahama. The community health workers program will vastly strengthen the grassroots community-based health planning services in Ghana towards the goal of universal healthcare coverage it is an outgrowth of our successful model for community healthcare workers who are engaged in the Ebola tents in contact tracing throughout the frontiers of Guinea, Liberia, and Ghana. We will showcase our 20,000 recruits so far with a view to one million across the continent within a decade. And this May, the next project in Africa, which I am excited about, is the opening of the United Nations Sustainable Development Center for All Africa in Rwanda where United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon will formally speak and open the center there. There will also be several satellite centers throughout the continent of Africa. This center will function kind of like a Brookings Institute for Africa. And my boss, Dr. Jeff Sachs, has just appointed me to the board of directors of this United Nations Sustainable Development Center. Risk for me now will involve seeing that we can help to fulfill the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals throughout all of Africa. It may sound like an impossibly large task to undertake, but I believe that My education here at Harvard Divinity School opened me up to the understanding that my possibilities in this world were truly limitless. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Betsy. I would now like to invite Alton Pollard, MDiv 81, to offer his reflections.
5: I remember when the email came from HDS about my selection as a 2016 Peter Gomes honoree. It was around mid-January. I was rather preoccupied and did not take special notice of my inbox. (laughs) Nearly two weeks would pass before I read the message, only to be amazed, Susie, by its content. (laughs) I marvel still. At the time, I was in Ethiopia, Betsy, leading a small delegation from Howard University School of Divinity on a mission to return a sacred manuscript to one of that country's holiest sites, the Deborah Labanos Monastery. HUSD, where I serve, is home to one of this nation's largest collections of Ethiopian cultural artifacts. Housed among our collection, were two singular texts from the 14th century, the Acts of Paul and the Acts of Sarah Bauman. We had a threefold dedication at Howard to return the manuscript to its rightful home of origins, to honor the rich ancestral legacy of the peoples of Africa and Ethiopia, and to model institutional integrity in the return of stolen legacies that are not morally or materially ours. Being a risk taker is imprinted on my life, very akin to my colleagues at this table and our dear brother, Preston, sitting out there. I dare to commit to the idea that our humanity in common is more compelling than actions that seek to divide and quarantine. I know what it means to be imbued with a sense of divine restlessness in the midst of empire, to be dissatisfied with the status quo ante, to know that in our creative and coalescing struggle for human community is resident the fierce antidote to hegemony. Through the years, with the care and support of my dear family. I have dedicated my life to multiplying the experiences that unite. I begin with the always first, bearing manifold witness to the communities of African descent, the home place for me, the magnificent children of Africa on the continent in the United States and wherever we are found in diaspora. I claim, as my own, the prayer of the celebrated Ivorian poet activist, Barnard Jaeger, I give you thanks, my God, for creating me black. With equal delight, I affirm with Archbishop Desmond Tutu our humanity in common as the rainbow people of God. I attest to the wisdom of Africa's elders and ancestors. I am because we are. Issues of race, ethnicity, gender, class, age, sexuality, nationality, and more do intersect and coalesce time and again in my work, contending with racism, health and hunger, homelessness and abuse, apartheid, education for transformation, workers' rights, reproductive choice, gender equity, marriage equality, multiculturality, and inter-religious engagement. Today, with movements for living wages, equitable care, Ecology, Sustainability, Women's Rights, and Immigrants' Rights. With designations like Occupy, Move On, Color of Change, Moral Monday, and the largely female and queer-led Black Lives Matter, the work of beloved community is in good hands. My time at HDS gave me a profound appreciation for the life of the mind and the life of the spirit inextricably wound. I was inspired to apply to HDS by the pulpit example set by my pastor during the late 60s, Dr. Arthur L. Whitaker. For anyone unfamiliar with the name, he was a pioneering graduate of HDS. Bachelor of Sacred Theology in 1952, former Executive Minister of the American Baptist Churches of the United States, and a psychotherapist, much like Dr. Peter J. Gomes, Dr. Whitaker's combination of intellectual curiosity and public witness left me thirsting for more. He had raised my expectations of what was possible in this world in the quest for the life of the spirit. At HDS, theological luminaries like Crystal Stendhal and Harvey Cox sated my appetite to learn while such provocateurs as Canon Burgess Carr and visiting PhD scholars Dolores Williams and Jacqueline Grant further encouraged me to transgress. It is a signal honor to be here today with my former professor, Preston Noah Williams, here in our company. My faith and my education have served me well in the quest for freedom, justice, equality, and wholeness in our world. Everywhere I see the old world dying and a new world yearning to be born. The emerging and expectant world is one where the great social and spiritual barriers of our day are being overcome with the very creativity of our hearts and deeds and lives, where the inexhaustible possibilities of the universe are embraced and the imperfect meaning of our democracy are ever expanding. This is my daily prayer. It is not the serenity prayer. God, grant me the courage to change the things I cannot accept. God, grant me the courage to, accept, to change the things I cannot accept. Thank you to HDS for this wonderful recognition. I cannot begin to tell you the tears that it brought to my eyes. In my 35 years away from here, I have returned but once. Today is a glad homecoming. I will long remember this day for it is meaningful beyond words. Thank you to my incredible family, my mother, now past, my father, neither of whom had the opportunity to have higher education. My sister and my brother, my daughter Asha, who wanted to be here today, but is on the West Coast working for Tyra Banks, living her dream. (laughs) Our son, Brooks, and our daughter-in-law, Shakira, who fill us with pride. And I want to share a story. And I know he's going to say you would embarrass me, but I have to tell you anyway. On the very day that I was to graduate from HDS, I was one of the student speakers on the program. I went to pick my wife, Jessica, up from work. As she got in the car, her water burst. And we did not make it to my graduation that day. Our son decided he he would upstage my diploma ceremony. And so today, it is such And honor. (laughs) And finally, to my beloved and my very best friend in all the world, Jessica, for believing in me, for you are my heart.
1: Thank you. Thank you, you, Alton. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to all of you once again, Cynthia Kane, Valerie Corr, Betsy Parker, and Alton Pollard, and our good friend Preston Williams, the 2016 Peter J. Gomes honorees.